You are listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 19. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Bonjour, mesdames et messieurs! What? Oh, I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> I, I thought I was still in Paris, so... <laughs> I was, oh, uh, someone's been to Paris! Yeah, I had to tell you, I was in uh, Paris uh, over the weekend with the whole family, it was lovely. Ooh, how very nice! So the photos, yeah. nice ones. Photos for, on Facebook and... Uh, also, there's some photos that's not on Facebook. I, I had, it was the family. I had my kids with me and we found some uh, very non-skeptical places where we took some photos. I have one photo of the kids outside of a homeopathic, uh, osteopathic, whatever pathic they had uh, window and they are making, uh, it's clear from the wind, from their faces what they think about those things. So I'm raising a new uh, generation of skeptics. Excellent. Mm, <laughs> nice. You're raising them up to skepticism. That's great. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> it's terrible to raise skeptical kids because they don't trust you. They're skeptical <laughs> also of yourself. And that's not uh, what I intended. There's no authority uh, respected no. Uh, by, no, by a skeptical child. Yeah, oh, They're nice. supposed to challenge authority. So, of course, they challenge me as well. That's too bad. Of course, I'm no expert in child rearing, but uh, <laughs> to, to a certain extent, I would assume that that it would require some authoritarianism, mm, I don't some know. level of authoritarianism. Well, whatever authority you have as a parent, it soon disappears. So yeah, <laughs> especially when they think <laughs> for themselves. Yeah, so we discovered something that I hadn't heard about before. It was called phytotherapy. It was uh, something they had in Paris, apparently. I had to look it up. It's some kind of herbalism, I think. Yeah, have you heard it is. Of it? it is. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, a okay. thing. It's a thing mm-hmm. um, in many places uh, around the world, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's usually coupled with uh, the naturalistic fallacy mm. <laughs> that uh, it's better because it's, it's natural. Yeah. But people tend to simply ignore the fact that uh, many of uh, the active ingredients of drugs are actually extracts from different plants and stuff mm. so yeah but i think isn't that the idea that it's not good to extract the active uh, substances only you need to eat the whole plant sort of or the whole thing and that makes it more natural and more uh, better i don't know yeah i i really don't subscribe to that kind of thinking it's why would it be better because it's it comes with a lot of others that you don't know what the effects of, of them are and then you have yeah. one thing that you you know what the effect of it is and that's what you want to use right yeah sure so how can I you say, how can you be sure that one thing in the in the plant does not counteract another thing in the plant yeah yeah probably yeah anyway that's what we found out and so, yeah and some of the plants evolved to fight against uh, herbivores that are eating them <laughs> so they are producing toxins. <laughs> so, so yeah, I just don't get it. No. Nope. What about you, Yelena? What have you been up to? You tend to go and uh, to see different shows and talks and everything in good old London, right? Yeah, I've seen the um, 
stand-up comedy last night uh, by Omid Jalili. Uh, he was doing his new routine, so it was a really tiny crowd. It was like 80 of us, and he was literally standing like mm. two meters away. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awesome. And he is a very funny guy. Mm, so great. It was Great. A good time. You have an active social life, haven't you? <laughs> well, that's what one does when one lives in London. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You can't help it, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been busy chasing representatives of uh, European skeptical organizations. Mm. The Good Thinking Society and uh, some Europeans, uh, other European skeptical organizations are planning to, to, to do a great thing, um, great collaborative work. So stay tuned uh mm -hmm. we're gonna mention a few things here and there about it so yeah obviously we're gonna let you know how it all goes down but i wanted to mention that it's in the making also we've been contacted by none other than susan gerbeck she wrote us a message after our interview with marco kovic mm -hmm. um, she did gently letting us know as she does <laughs> that one of the best ways to tackle this problem of um, you know this widespread misinformation about alternative medicine uh, that affects large-scale democratic debates and decisions is editing wikipedia articles and putting the necessary reliable information out there and i have to say she's right she has she has a point yes and and after all this is exactly why yelena and i joined her gsrw project the guerrilla skepticism on wikipedia project where we met and that ultimately led to us doing this podcast together <laughs> yeah so we do know what she's talking about but um for some reason we we didn't mention it on the interview it really is one of the most powerful tools wikipedia yeah i use it all the time yeah we we all use it i think if you think about it when you do a google search online a wikipedia article is most likely to appear on top or at least among the, the the first few hits, right? Yes. So yes, it does. Yeah, that that is if the person, the topic, the idea you're searching for uh, is is actually one that has a page. Uh, chances are that if I see it on a Google search, I will check out that page. Mm. And uh, okay, what I find there has to pass my critical test of making sense and um, and being properly referenced, but. Uh, the problem is it's not necessarily the case for everyone, right? No. Who uses it? And, uh, yeah, after all, it's supposed to be an online encyclopedia, so pre people just treat it as one, thinking it's a reliable source. Well, surprise, surprise, it's only as reliable as editors writing the page make it. Yeah. So that's why it's so important to have skeptically-minded people editing Wikipedia. Uh, this is why we joined, and this is why we encourage from time to time other people to join in as well. Um, there is one thing about that, one one other thing about this that is uh, worth mentioning, I think, is that people who want to educate people often struggle to gain audience. And if you think about it, Wikipedia does that part for you. So you, the only thing you have to worry about or to take care of is making sure the content is right in order to make a difference. So Wikipedia does the rest of the job. Yeah. With the Google search and everything. Yeah, it's a good way to reach out with your, your, your message, if, provided that you can have the, you know, it's correct and you have the, yeah. the links and, and the stuff. And the, yeah. On last episode, um, I mentioned um, a skeptic group um, 
that was creating some videos and TV programs and reported on the European Skeptics Congress. Um, and instead of saying that it was, in fact, Czech uh, organization co called uh, Sisyphus, uh, I said it was Polish, so I do apologize. Um, in fact, the credit goes to Czech skeptics um, and I'm sure Polish skeptics also doing a great job, but um, it was my mistake. Thomas Witkowski and um, Matiej Zatonski. I, I'm not sure I pronounced their name well. Yeah, they appeared on uh, panels and, uh, and stuff. And uh, they promoted their book on uh, psychology and how it can go wrong. But yeah, what we talked about was uh, the, the Czech guys, um, especially Antonin Pavlicek and uh, Leos Kisa. But this brings me to an earlier self-correction that I made <laughs> on an earlier episode. Do you remember that one? Hmm. About uh, Robert De Niro? Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you followed up on the story? Yes, I've seen the follow-up about uh, Robert De Niro now backing the anti-vaxxers claims. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go again. <laughs> I really do admire his work as an actor. But when he starts saying things like, it's not really well established that there is no connection, mm. then I could just scrape my face off. <laughs> it's, it's like, what? Yeah, that way it was too... It is absolutely clear, man. You just need to consult some experts. No, it was too bad because he had this movie coming on to the, to the film festival and then he backed down and I said, okay, good. And then he steps into it again, and it's, yeah. uh, it's just frustrating. And we all praised him for that. Yeah, we all praised him for backing off, but yeah. now he's there again. And so, ah, no, frustrating. It's just talking shit again. It's, oh, yeah. wow, shouldn't. shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, we, we're going back to our kind of the point of this podcast and the point of a lot of people who try and to promote uh, uh, skepticism and rational thinking is if you taught how to think, not what to think, things like this will not confuse you you will know, okay, hang on a second, he's an actor, he's got no uh, say in what you know, vaccines do or, or not do, that he's not medical profession professional. Uh, whereas, of course, a lot of people don't have these tools and they go, oh, Robert De Niro, I love him, he must be right, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I, bet, I bet sometimes these people, celebrities, I mean, who are being looked up to by millions of people, uh, and being highly regarded, I do think they have a tendency to believe that they're right, yeah. even if they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, it's hard as well. I can understand it in a way. Yeah, they, uh, celebrity <laughs> comes with a, a kind of a sense of uh, losing the sense of reality in a way. Yeah, and people ask them also and, all kinds of things, and they feel they have to respond, and everybody seems to listen what they ever, whatever they say. So yeah, everything they get a feeling that everything I say is interesting and correct, and everybody listens to me, and it's hard to, you know, be self-critical. I think after a while, and I think it's the same with politicians. You know, oh, it's even worse. Well, yeah, but politicians have. Agenda, they'll just peddle whatever uh, gives them more voices, more uh, votes. Yeah, but when it comes care. to to kind of um, authoritarian, closer to dictatorships, uh, kind of uh, of of leadership, there is a feedback, or or there is a lack of of negative feedback to these people. 
who surround themselves with uh, with with those who praise them all the time and agree mm-hmm. with them all the time, and uh, they they absolutely lose the sense of reality mm-hmm. and the because the the connection with reality. Yeah, this happens with uh, our prime minister, but it also happens with a much better known person than a Hungarian prime minister. It's Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. I think he believes that he's this kind of uh, hero, superhero who who knows everything and he's competent in everything. Probably, but this really flows down slowly to other uh, countries as well, and Hungary is one of them because uh, the Hungarian prime minister is is really in good good terms with him, uh, following him like a poodle. <laughs> really, it's 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 terrible. Watch Andrew's getting into trouble. Oh, never mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> But this is hilarious. Um, we have a frivolous party called the Hungarian Two-Tailed Dog Party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love frivolous parties. Yeah, it starts out as a joke and they, they, they start to gain support. Uh, and that happened with the Hungarian Two-Tailed Dog Party as well. Mm. And what they started is they issued um, an extension um, for uh, browsers, internet browsers, uh, called a Putin Alert. <laughs> so whenever the this extension detects some kind of propagandistic communication uh, in the wording of the article or or just a source of the article then a dancing putin figure appears oh, that <laughs> in the middle of your screen that's great <laughs> is it uh, is it available in english i want one i want that no no i i, I believe it's not available so it's uh, not not yet at least so too bad you can contact too them bad. yeah just contact them <laughs> <laughs> and on that note i don't think we've talked about two very important english uh language uh, extensions to browsers Rebutter and Web of Trust. Are you guys using them? No. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. So y- you are a great, uh, or you were a great advocate of uh, Rebutter, uh, Pontus. Do you want to talk? Uh, yeah, I still, I still have a lot of sympathy with it. It's just, uh, 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 you know, over time, it, it's not really taking off, which is terrible because it is a great idea. the The idea is that if you see something that contradicts something else yeah. on on the internet you just put a link between the two things so the next time you go to the first site you say hey this this blog or this whatever has been contradicted by this one over here click here to see the contradiction so it doesn't take sides it just says this says one thing yeah. the other thing says another thing but it relies on people putting those links there and it, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. Yeah, it's only as good as as the content that people people are providing for it. Yeah, it's crowdsourced. You have you, you have to have people doing the the links, mm-hmm. and if they do that, it's great. Yeah, yeah, but it's not available for Safari. No, and I even wrote to them <laughs> asking for some. Yeah. some some work on it and and since it's it's crowdsourced and since it's an open source thing they it's it's not a company behind it that 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 does it it's a community effort so yeah. if there is anyone out there listening to this show and has the knowledge of how to do it please please write up a software extension for for rebutter 
Yeah. That's, that would be so great to have it. I have it on Chrome. It works very well if, if, if you're looking for the right content, but it's not available for everything, of course, because yeah. people are not providing links for everything. The, it, also to make sure, it, it's spelled R-B-U-T-R, so Rebutter. Rebutter, yeah. And, and it's Australian uh, uh, invention. I talked, I've met with uh, Shane Greenup, who, who, who uh, was the one ca- coming up with the idea. He doesn't mm. do the programming. He, he's a great guy. So, and and I, I know he wants to get contacted by people who want to help uh, building it. Mm. Yeah, so if... Yeah, we're we're gonna put a link on the website um, on the show notes. Um, yeah, the other thing is Web of Trust that really takes sides, and that this is why it's a double-edged sword because uh, it tells you something about how reliable the website you're looking at is, and it appears on Google searches as well. So before you click on the website there is a small a sign saying that, okay, you should be careful with that website. And that's a great tool uh, for skeptics at least. But of course, when other people start to, from, yes, the other side, so to speak, start to use it to question the validity of uh, websites with good content and reliable content, that it can be um, counterproductive as well. So uh, yeah, but at least at least in any case, it gives you an indication that there's a controversy here, and that's good. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there is a, um, a list of things that you can check. This is okay f- for children to see it. Um, you shouldn't trust the, the the content of the website, etc., etc. It's a good and um, it can be a very effective tool uh, to distinguish. Uh, when you're doing a search or, or when you try to assess um, uh, websites and stuff. I think we should start to move on. <laughs> Let's uh, go on. Move on with the show. Uh, just one one more thing before we go. Um, we've talked about the, engaging with the other side. And I'm, I'm listening to many, many podcasts um, daily. And one of them is done by the BBC it's called analysis mm-hmm. and now there is a it's a series of five uh, episodes that investigate the, the, the question of of uh, free speech and one of the ideas that it's questioning is the no platform policy that you're not giving platform to your opponent um, especially when it comes to extremist ideas uh, and it, the question remains whether it's it's best to ban them from appearing on stage, people really spreading extremist ideas, or question them publicly and give them a platform and on that very platform challenge their views. And I think this could be a good segue to our On This Day segment. Yelena. Hi, Andres. Who's your person of choice for this day, the 20th of April? Yes, so 20th of April um, is a, a birthday of um, Adolf Hitler. Wow. Uh, coincidentally. He was born on 20th of April, 1889. Um, and I'm sure most of our listeners will know who he is. Um, 
Unfortunately, he was born alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, man. Uh, just quickly go over basics. He was a German politician who was a leader of the Nazi Party, um, Chancellor of Germany from 1933 to in 1945, and Führer of Nazi Germany from 1934 to 1945. Um, as a dictator of Nazi Germany, he initiated World War II in Europe. Uh, with the invasion of Poland in September 1939 and was a central figure of the Holocaust. Now, what I want to concentrate on today um, is on conspiracy theory that Hitler strongly believed in and that led him to be the leader of Holocaust, essentially, mm -hmm. in the way that it helped develop his attitude towards Jewish people. So I've been reading a book. I'll, I'll plug it in here, by Rob Bretherton called Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. And one of the um, uh, chapters was uh, about the conspiracy theory um, called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, it's a very interesting conspiracy theory that was completely and utterly fabricated by Russians at the beginning of the 1900s um, to blame everything that's going on in the world on Jewish people uh, because they didn't like Jewish people. And uh, it was a very interesting publication. It was, I think, 80 pages long, so it wasn't that big. It basically, it stated that um, the um, elders of Zion, Jewish people, um, got together and they decided that to rule the world and um, they're doing it by controlling the press and the world economy. Um, and it was so vague, th this uh, this little book, that you could blame Jewish people for every single thing that happened in the history of the world. So you could just make it fit. Uh, the war, the wars, the famine, um, uh, anything you can think of. Um, the um, protocols that were translated into various languages and one of them was a German language um, and not only that they were uh, actually taught in schools in Germany as an, a fact um, and when um, the first German translation appeared in 1920 the Hitler just embarked on his career in politics um, and so he began citing the protocol in his speeches as early as 1921 um, so he um, also mentioned the protocols in his manifesto of 1924 called Mein Kampf, which I'm sure, again, a lot of people will be aware of, um, where he deals extensively with the reality of Jewish conspiracy and uh, praises protocols. Uh, he's saying how far the entire existence of these people is based on a continuous lie is shown in an incomparable manner and certainty in the protocol of the uh, wise men of Zion. Are you saying that they taught the protocols of the elders of Zion in the schools before Hitler came to power, or did he put it in the, to the schools? The, the protocols were taught in schools after the uh, Nazi came to power in, uh, in 1933, okay. but they were available in German before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. before that. Th that's how he got hold of them. Uh, and he probably opened them and thought, oh, this is exactly what I thought, you know, and based a lot of his thinking around that. Um or I could use this for my political aspirations. Well, no, let me let me finish. It's, it's actually quite fascinating. Sorry. I was going to actually say that later, uh, Pontus, the, the, my next sentence was, less than a decade later, a Nazis had gained control of Germany and they soon added the protocols to the national school's curriculum. So, in fact, 
they've went as far as to say that uh, the Na Nazi party edition published in 1933 instructed readers, it is the duty of every German to study the terrifying, terrifying uh, vowel of elders of Zion and to compare them with the boundless misery of our people and then to draw the necessary conclusions. Uh, so it's played into Hitler's hand in, in many ways. Uh, throughout his rise to power and reign in his Führer, Hitler repeatedly made it clear that to restore Germany to freedom and power, the first thing to do is to rescue it from the Jew who is running our country. Uh, so he, he didn't even refer to them as Jewish people. It was just, you know, the collective Jew. Um, and he constantly referred to the Jewish people in grotesque and dehumanizing terms. Hmm. Uh, so inspired by the vast demonic conspiracy confided in the protocols, he saw the Jewish people as a powerful four, the metaphysical opposite of the uh, Aryan race. And we knew, knew know that uh, Hitler's goal was to uh, create the pure Aryan race in Germany. And uh, obviously Jewish people weren't part of that. So throughout the war, even as millions of uh, European Jews were being systematically rounded up and sent to gas chambers, Hitler and his Nazi uh, propagandists defined the war as one waged by the world's Jews against Germany. So it wasn't, um, he didn't see it as his deed. Again, I don't even know in what world <laughs> he was living in, of course, in his head, but this is what he basically claimed. Even at the end of it all, as Berlin was crumbling around him, Hitler maintained that he was blameless. Sorry, and I'm quoting his words. Uh, it is untrue that I or anyone, anyone else in Germany wanted the war in 1939. Um, end of quote. He claimed in his final political statement, dictated on the morning of April 29, 1945, the day before he killed himself. Um, again, I'm quoting his words. It was desired and instigated exclusively by those international uh, statesmen who were either of Jewish descent or worked for Jewish interests. End of quote. In the final sentence of the statement, his last words to uh, posterity, Hitler urged his successors to keep up the fight against the Jewish conspiracy. Again, another quote. Above all, I charge the leaders of the nation and those under them to scrupulous observance of the law of race and to merciless opposition to the universal poisoner of all peoples, international jury. Let me just finish it by saying that, um, as you can see, this his... Um, a fanatical belief in this made-up uh, conspiracy theory became somewhat of a basis for um, Holocaust um, and death of over six million Jewish people or, um, in the, the Second World War. Um, and it's incredible how um, the document that was actually debunked in 1920s as well, um, it was proven to be wrong, it was proven to be... Um, uh, just fabricated, still, you know, managed to gain the popularity. And I think at some point, the sales of the protocol were as high as Bible. So they, they were printed all over the uh, the world and appealed wow. to so many people. And I never knew about the, the influence of that protocol because I've never heard of it, luckily, or whatever. But um, any rational thinking person should have seen the flaws of it. I mean, uh, our listeners could find more information about the protocols and where it actually outlines um, how, you know, it, it says that there's this just, you know, group, bunch of Jewish men who just control the whole world. Um, and 
but this is, you know how sometimes people say, so what's the harm if somebody believes in a conspiracy theory? Well, that's one of the biggest examples of what kind of harm it can bring um, to the humanity. can always be a problem that uh, when you're asked that question and you reply that uh, it can lead to terrible things, uh, then you're accused of uh, using... Um, a slippery slope fallacy mm. but there are examples of that really happening so that that it starts with the little things it starts with us with a small absolutely harmless looking idea that becomes a terrible threat to humanity so that's uh, that's what's happening and yeah yeah another uh, another example of a leader a dictator losing the connection with uh, reality and to think that he actually didn't see the Second World War as the the Germany starting it, but but he blamed the, you know the Jewish people for that as well. That's that's incredible. I mean, I'm sure he believed what he said because he was very passionate, obviously, about his cause. Yeah, it's always others who are to blame. Yeah. Have you read uh, the book by Elliot Aronson and uh, Carol Tavris? Mistakes were made, but not by me. Mm-mm. I've heard of it, no. but I haven't read it. Okay, I do recommend it to everyone okay. because it's mm-hmm. brilliant. It's a brilliant book. Uh, both people are um, social psychologists, and uh, they they bring up lots of uh, good examples to behaviors like that. That is, it's always the outsiders. It's always somebody else whom I need to blame, and and it's it's not me. And hmm. it's it it can be traced back to your self-assessment uh, problems uh, how you how you see yourself your self-esteem that whether you if, if you're making a mistake that that means uh, you are a bad person I don't know about you your countries but uh, for example in our in, in our country it's uh, when you're at school you're a child and you're making a mistake or you don't you don't know something you're being humiliated uh, many times. Hmm. And then you start to think that if that, that the association in your mind starts to develop, that if I'm wrong, then it means that I'm a bad person. So that makes it even stronger, the need for someone else to blame for you being wrong or, or a mistake being made. So it's, it's a brilliant book. Hmm. So I do recommend it. Cool, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, we we wandered <laughs> very far from the original idea. But yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, that, it doesn't help that he was also a sociopath um, in, <laughs> yeah. pow- in power. Um, yeah. And with one testicle only. And... Well, yeah. <laughs> <No>. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think it, it it's interesting to to speculate whether he really believed in this to be one hundred percent truth, or he used it. As a as a as a tool, as to, a tool yeah. to convince others, or if it was something in between, you never we can't tell. But uh, I don't think still. he would be able to tell. Mm. There was a lot of no, know, maybe no, maybe. but there was a lot of hate against Jewish people uh, uh, back then, and um, it this is what it's all kind of culminated in. And yeah, but you know what? Rode that bandwagon. This is kind of um, these days. Uh, what's really hot is xenophobia 
um, and it it is triggered by um, immigrants from outside of Europe or from other parts of Europe uh, to Western European countries, or the refugees uh, coming from Syria and other places. So um, th- it is one thing that there is a general hate towards these people, um, toward outsiders. It's a, a group cohesion thing that uh, the insiders and the outsiders are treated differently differently but the other thing is that it can really be strengthened by political rhetorics and and it can be used by politicians and and multiplied throughout the years and it can it can be traced in many countries, and especially in history, it happened many, many times. Um, so it's 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 terrible. Look look at what's going on now in in different countries across Europe. These ideas, sometimes even extreme ideas, as to how to treat these people and how to deal with these situations, are terrible. But through gradual changes, terrible uh, states can be reached in that regard. So, yeah, thanks very much, Jelena, for, for bringing that up. Adolf Hitler. Yeah, no, after the, the Second World War, I don't think too many people were named Adolf. No, I don't think it's a very popular name. Whatever. Thanks very much again. So, let's see what's going on in Europe in the coming week. Let me start with one thing that is not happening the next week. But it is happening between the 26th and the 28th of September 2016. Um, it's the What Works Global Summit 2016. It is uh, organized by um, the Campbell Collaboration, uh, the International Initiative for Impact Evaluation, Sense About Science, and the Center for Evidence and Social Innovation at Queen's University, Belfast. Um, and uh, other organizations are, are f- um, uh, joining in as well. The event is a culture-shifting event, putting evidence at the heart of policy and practice. So it will promote quality evidence and ways of producing and communicating evidence to maximize the uptake into policy and practice, which is a great initiative, in my opinion, uh, um, there, is, there is an open call for presentations. The deadline is April 25th, 2016. So this is why we're covering it now, uh, because you have five days to check this out. And if you're interested, send in a presentation or submit a presentation. So I'm not going to go into detail just yet. Uh, we're going to put the link on the show notes and you can check it out. It's really worth it, and uh, we're looking forward to to hear more about that event after after uh, the end of September when when it's it's uh, happening in London, by the way, Bloomsbury, London. But the coming week, there are several events. Um, tomorrow on Thursday, the twenty first, Batford in the UK, Batford Skeptics in the Pub will feature. Michael Marshall from the Good Thinking Society. He's talking about homeopathy in the UK. They're, they've been achieving great things with the Good Thinking Society in that regard. So it 
must be a great talk. Uh, it's it's always fun to listen to uh, Marsh. So if you're near Bedford, then we do recommend you go. Um, on the same day, 21st of April, um, Liverpool Skeptics in the Pub. Um, they'll have Professor Diane Perkis uh, talk about witches. The day after, on the 22nd, uh, we have uh, Göteborg Skeptics in the Pub again. The, this is the full moon pub that they have on every full moon. So the lunatics <laughs> will meet again in Gothenburg. Uh, there will be quiz and karaoke. Really, I love the idea of a lunatic pub. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the same day, a bit later though, it's Valencia, Skeptics in the Pub in, uh, in Spain. And it's Sect 2.0, The Emotional Origin of Disease, Psychology, Therapies and Sects. Uh, it it really sounds interesting. So if you're around Valencia, then do attend. And if you're not, uh, on the 23rd, you could be in Brussels and be on there, Skeptics in the Pub. It's going to be about Japan and more specifically about the myths and realities surrounding the samurai and the ninjas of uh, Japan. There will be a speaker called Jean-Michel Abrasar who will talk about this. Uh, and uh, that sounds really interesting because I know that the ninjas and the samurai was not always as uh, pre- uh, presented in the popular media. Yeah. Um, to Hung- I, I don't know about your countries, but um, to Hungary, it, it only came in um, at around the 1990s. So in the 80s, there was some karate, um, there, there, there were the different martial arts, but uh, ninjutsu and, um, um, and um, kenjutsu, which is the, the sword fight, uh, really started to gain ground after the political changes. But I, as a kid, I was obsessed with these. I wanted to be a ninja. I wanted to be a samurai. Wow. And I, I still admire the samurai swords, for example. It's the katanas. Wow. <laughs> They're beautiful. They're just awesome. Um, so on the day, uh, same day, April 23rd, there will be a Rationalist International Conference in Tallinn, Estonia that will last two days, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we'll uh, put a link um, for you to look around and see how much tickets are, who are the speakers. They've got quite a few conf- good confirmed speakers on already. And it's going to be the first uh, conference of its kind in the Baltic states, which I'm part of, not Estonia, but Latvia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll have sp- panel discussions, all the good things that uh, conferences normally have. Uh, so if you're around the area, check them out. Um, and like I said, we'll link to their um, conference details. I, we have talked about that before. Uh, but yeah, I would be very much interested in, in, in how it goes. So we might try and contact them to, for an interview at some point. Yeah, that'll yeah. be a good idea, I think, yeah. Yeah, to see how the first one went. On Monday, 25th of uh, April, uh, in York, there will be uh, The Phantom of Heilbronn and Other Forensic Faux Pas by Emma McClure. This is the same uh, that was in Manchester last week. Uh, so she will talk about uh, the how modern forensic science is misunderstood and how how well you can really use DNA and other... Uh, techniques to to f- capture criminals and what is myth and what is uh, science mm. on the 
26th of April, Tuesday, there will be a Cambridge Skeptics in the Pub. And the, the theme uh, is Your Brain Hates You. A few ways in which your brain will trick you if you let it. Um, and the speaker is Andrew Dart. Very interesting topic. I'm always fascinated with all things that consider brain because we think our brain is almighty, but actually it deceives us in so many ways. So what we see is not what we see. What we hear is not what we hear. If what we remember isn't really what we remember. And it's all terribly misleading. So there you go. Yeah, but it's it's so good to be aware of those that how your mind, your own mind can trick you. Yeah. And you can start discovering stuff about yourself mm. by observing your behaviors uh, through that looking glass of psychology. It's amazing. And the other thing is uh, magicians and how mediums and psychics work and what tricks they use. It's good to, to be aware of those as well. And this is what uh, Paul Zenon uh, is going to be talking about uh, in Eastbourne, at Eastbourne Skeptics in the Pub, that's uh, in the south of uh, the UK. I really hope to be able to go. Paul Zenon, if, if someone doesn't know him, um, he's one of the most recognized magicians uh, around the UK, author of several several uh, books. He introduced uh, Street Magic he he's really interested in in cons and scams uh how people are um, are being deceived by paranormal claims and Paul Zanon is super fun to listen to so uh, really looking forward to that that's happening on the 27th of uh, April it's a Wednesday uh, oh we had a, a lot of events to talk about as you could hear but there is one more uh, I'd like to mention, and that is Capcon. Uh, that is happening a bit later on uh, in May, the beginning of May, from f the 5th of May to the 7th of May. That's uh, Thursday to Saturday. And it's happening in Hamburg, uh, in Germany. As far as I know, it's the, the largest scale uh, skeptical conference in uh, Germany covering lots of different topics but we won't talk about that we will have Julia Offer uh, from the German Skeptical Society GWUB uh, talk about those coming later on uh, on this show okay so let's see what kind of topics we have to talk about other than we've already covered <laughs> Um, I would just want to briefly talk about the Italian doctor who is using uh, Facebook to fight anti-vaxxers. Uh, uh, his name is Roberto Burioni um, and he's got currently over 26,000 uh, followers on Facebook. Um, basically, um, he was shocked by the growing number of children who die from vaccine-preventable diseases in, it in Italy um, and uh, stories of parents who refuse to vaccinate their kids. Um, and being a professor of, of microbiology and virology himself, he decided to take on anti-vaxxers where they spread misinformation. Um, the, one of the sources where they spread information on is Facebook. Mm. So um, he set up the page and we will link uh, his page on, on uh, our podcast and you can go on Facebook and follow him. Um, I know it's going to be all in Italian, but I think it's good to support 
uh, any kind of uh, initiative like that. Um, and um, he is using it as a platform to talk about the, the dangers of not vaccinating. So, for example, there was um, one story he tells um, of uh, Brendan Hull, an Australian swimmer who lost most of his hearing and his right leg at age six due to complications from chickenpox, a preventable disease. Um, he uh, Burioni cites Hall's experience to demonstrate that chickenpox, a common childhood virus, can still have serious repercussions and to expose um, as ridiculous the anti-vaccine stance that preventable diseases aren't a serious health risk. And that's one of the things they're peddling very hard, the anti-vaxxers. In fact, they're saying it's a good thing for kids to experience the disease so that they can get immune, immunity to it. And they even... I'm sure people heard of uh, organizing the parties where the kids would come and infect each other, and uh, mm. which is beyond uh, just boggles my mind. Um, and uh, basically, Burion's goal is to talk to parents directly using real-world examples. Um, and one of his, his uh, posts, he describes another case from New Zealand. Um, uh, about a guy called Ali Jan Williams, who was infected with tetanus when he was seven years old after he got a small cut on his foot. Um, and his parents had previously refused to get their son um, the vaccines that protect against tetanus. And uh, it was the decision they now admit was made without facts and one that would later put their child at risk. So uh, I think it's, a, it's a important to inform as many people as possible and I know a lot of people just jumping on the bandwagon they just go okay there's this active anti-vaccination movement it feels right I don't know maybe they've got some friends in it or but they haven't got all their facts straight and they just jump on it and say right that's it no vaccination for my kids and then later on when the kid gets infected or sick they probably backtrack but it's too late it's too little too late unfortunately once the infection is there, the, the complications could be terrible, you know. Yeah. Uh, some diseases are, are deadly yeah. and kids do die. So he's doing great work in Italy. Um, I, I don't know why I thought Italy maybe will be better than other European countries in terms of anti-vaccination problem, but I guess it's spreading very quickly. Because we don't hear about them too much. <laughs> That's that right. Regard. Yeah, you, you're yeah. probably right. You're yeah. probably right. And <clears throat> it's good that we now doing the, the research and, and getting uh, this information from all over the, the, the Europe. When you start reading um, uh, up on stuff in Italian, mm. then then you'll find a lot of material that, that yeah. takes on that topic. Yeah, and of course, like we, we hear about probably... Uh, American and Australian anti-vaccination movements because these are big countries and they do make big headlines. Whereas Italian. and these are these are English-speaking news outlets. True. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's that makes a difference. Yeah. Please follow him on, on Facebook. Yeah, 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 and like his page. It shows some support. Another thing that you do know what graphology is, right? So it's it's the study of handwriting. Yeah, it's, it's a study of the yeah, and um, of course there are certain claims that that uh, it's um, um, it is connected deeply and with your personality and your personality traits can be found in the way your handwriting looks and stuff like that. And for some weird reason, uh, totally unknown to me. Uh, up until March 2016, graphologists 
could be heard as judicial experts in certain case, uh, court cases in Hungary. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I thought that was debunked. Uh, it many, was many debunked years many, many years ago, but it didn't really get to the Hungarian authorities. So, uh, yeah, science, especially these days, doesn't really get through to authorities uh, in Hungary. Um, so it's surprising that it finally found its way to the decision makers. Uh, but it did. So graphology is no longer used in court cases. Although they were not widely employed, um, they were recognized as real experts if appeared at some point. And this led to really weird situations. Uh, there was, for example, a child abuse case in which the judge ruled in favor of the parents based on a personality profile provided by a graphologist. After an appeal, the case is still not closed, while medical examination of the children showed signs of sexual abuse, so it shouldn't have been that difficult uh, to to find out what the truth is. Hmm. Um, these so-called experts sometimes even provided their own lie detection mechanisms and systems, while even polygraphs are no longer recognized in court cases. So this is this is a weird kind of double standard situation here. Uh, so the situation was terribly uncontrolled. Uh, while new experts could not enter the field since 2006, which is a good thing, those who had already been in the system could still operate. Up until now, that is. Uh, finally, they are kicked out of the the courtrooms completely, and from now on, no graphologist can be employed in legal cases. Yeah, it was pawn time. Yeah. So, yeah, finally. I hope there are not many countries where, where graphology is used in, uh, in that uh, shape or form. It's just bonkers. There is a school in Sweden, in the city of Åtvidaberg, uh, where uh, the, the well, it's a bit of a story. The the parents have uh, reported the school uh, to the authorities because they don't think uh, the school has done enough for their child, who they say are uh, have uh, electromagnetic sensitivity. Mm. And the school, yeah, uh, so the school has done certain things. They have do, done. Uh, they have done measurements in the classroom. They have replaced some lighting in the classroom. Uh, and they have uh, uh, replaced some telephones. And uh, they have let uh, the student uh, work uh, alone in another room while the others are working in the, in the classroom. Uh, and so, so the problem is the school has done certain things to... to stop something that is not a real condition because electromagnetic sensitivity is not a real thing then they stopped the the, the headmaster of the school said stop no this is ridiculous we are not going to do this anymore or any more than we've already done because this is not real and now the authorities are giving the school an official remark because they're not doing enough for this uh, pupil so, uh, I, you know, the parents are wrong in saying that uh, the child is electromagnetic uh, sensitive. The school first went along with it and they said, no, stop, we're not doing anything because this is bullshit. And now the authorities are giving the school a remark because they're not doing it. So it really makes you sigh. Hmm. Yeah. 
Who? So, so it's a it's a triple, really wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's a triple. Yeah, yeah. And w- one of the problem they say is that the the parents have have said to the school, you are not to allowed to talk to the child about electromagnetic sensitivity at all. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how this child is reacting and not knowing what the problem is and why he has to sit in a separate room sometimes and you know mm. sounds like a real mess yeah Whew. uh but yeah sometimes when there is a real mess um things have to be done and there are occasions when what's being done is not the right thing and this is probably what happened in Brussels on the 14th of April uh, when the European Parliament made a decision on a new directive titled Protection of Undisclosed Know-how and Business Information Trade Secrets Against Their Unlawful Acquisition, Use and Disclosure. However, according to the European Public Health Alliance's recent press release, this directive is not as noble as its title suggests. And on a deeper look, it actually sends the signal that trade secrets outweigh public interest. They particularly mention healthcare and the position of pharmaceutical companies as they say it will diminish the hard-earned, still far from ideal amount of transparency of clinical trials. Um, Nina Renshaw, um, Secretary General of uh, the European Public Health Alliance, an independent non-profit association that deals with public health issues, uh, went as far as saying the European Parliament now goes against its own former clinical trials regulation that actually opened the door for uh, transparency in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, but was heavily opposed by pharmaceutical companies themselves. Um, So actually this might be one of the real issues in which we see how much can be changed for the better or for the worse, for that matter, only by lobbying. The European Council will have to vote on this on the 26th of May, but the debates until then should be very interesting and important to follow. Next week, uh, we hope to have Chris Peters from the Sense About Science on the show for an interview. Um, that's the non-profit organization behind the International All Trials campaign, so they have a lot to do with this uh, new directive if it really comes to life. And uh, we will definitely talk about this um, along many other topics that we want to cover, since it seems like a move in the opposite direction Uh, to what the campaign is trying to achieve. On every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. Our guest today is Dr. Julia Offe, board member of GWP, the Society for the Scientific Investigation of Parasciences in Germany, and head of Hamburg Skeptics, where she was the founder of Skeptics in the Pub Hamburg. She's a neurobiologist by training, and she founded Science Slam in Hamburg and many other German cities. She's also a member of the program committee for SCAPCON, an annual three-day conference in Hamburg for German skeptics. Julia Offer, welcome to the show. Hello. Oh, that's, that was quite a mouthful to uh, do your introduction. 
Um, but I understand you have a very limited time now. So uh, let's try to focus on um, uh, an upcoming event that's uh, SCAPCON. So when did it start and um, how, how much of a, of a popular thing is it in uh, Germany? Mm, to be honest, I don't know the exact when it started, but I think it's like the, it should be the 15th or 20th already. Um, we have it every year and we expect around uh, 150 to 200 visitors. Mm, that's that's pretty pretty nice, and uh, it covers all kinds of different topics, doesn't it? Yeah, it does because then it's interesting for everyone. We also thought of focusing it on alternative medicine and stuff like that, but we then we decided it would be better to have all sorts of different topics every year because, yeah, then it's interesting for many people. And everything is uh, happening in German. Everything is happening in German. Yes. Yeah, but there's a, we are we are the you know we are uh, the German, Austrian and Swiss skeptics all together. There's another organization yeah. in Switzerland, but we the GVP is for Germany and Austria, so there are almost a hundred million people speaking German. So yeah, that's that's yeah. <laughs> that's really a thing, and it's a huge thing. And GVP is is quite an active organization. So I'm following um, your website and. There's always something going on in the media uh, organized by uh, GVP. Um, by the way, SCAPCON is officially an event of the GVP? Yes, it is. Okay. Could you please um, help me and say the name, the original name of the organization? What GVP stands for? It stands for Gesellschaft zur wissenschaftlichen Untersuchung von Parawissenschaften. Oh, Sounds really nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you are running uh, one of the local chapters of uh, GVUP. Yes, I founded the group in Hamburg in uh, also in 2009 or 2000. Oh, no, in the end of 2008. And then, then we had the, uh, just a few months later, we had the first uh, um, GVUP conference or SCAPCON in Hamburg. Um, yeah, and I, because I thought um, Hamburg is a huge city and we, d we didn't have a group here mm -hmm. until then. So I asked uh, all, the, um, all the people who, who read the Skeptica, our magazine, and, um, uh, and other, yeah, I asked the GVP in Rostov to contact all the people they know around Hamburg. And actually in our first meeting, we were already like 30 people and now we have a monthly meeting or actually two monthly meetings and yeah we always see like between 10 and 15 people there that is not bad um yeah yeah so uh, getting back to scapcon the topics uh, you are um partly responsible for the for the program so i i i'm guessing you have a lot to do with what topics are uh, brought in what is the basis of the selection for the topics there um, well, actually, every one of us in the program committee has some favorite topics, so it's a mixture of all of them. What I like, what I think is important is um, for us is, you know, not just to say no to alternative medicine or to um, dowsing or whatever crap people do, but also to, to promote 
science and um, say yes to something. And so uh, for me, it was important to have the um, the topic of genetically modified plants in there because it's um, there's big opposition to that in Germany and we would like to say that well it's a it's probably one of the few chances we have to to uh, react or to cope with the climate change and also with the growing population and to feed all the people on, on earth so that uh, yeah we, we are um, speaking out for genetically modified plants um, can you measure the success uh, of uh, your activities or uh... Or do you have a method to find out if if it's really working? No, no, it's really hard to measure, of course. And you know, we we do have some outreach, but um, we have a anti-GMO lobby that is much much stronger in Germany, unfortunately. It's always coming up the question of lobbyists on the other side, so so to speak. So they they are very active. They have resources. Yeah. They have they have everything in their hands to to push for for what they stand up for. But uh, we are trying to do the scientific side uh, and trying to to put it through. But it's it's just it doesn't seem to be working uh, very efficiently because of the lack of resources, mostly. Um, so this is this is one of the the topics that is close closest to to your heart, and this will be uh, discussed extensively at Capcom. And I have two talks about uh, on this talk, and it's on Friday afternoon. Yeah, so homeopathy is a is a part of it, um, because we have a large movement now, which was founded in the beginning of this year, which is called Informationsnetzwerk Homeopathie, and they're actually getting a lot of um, press coverage. So we, we are hoping that homeopathy might, um, yeah, that yeah, many more people will understand that homeopathy is just sugar pills. Mm -hmm. And we have a magician there on Thursday night who will. Um, talked to him a lot in um, in the a few months ago and he said um, that he he will show us that even skeptics um, can be fooled and that as long as you really want something to be true that everyone can fool uh, some people will be able to fool you and tell you that it's true or, or make make you believe that something is true which is, uh, that isn't that actually isn't yeah 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 and um, the the speakers and the the, the invited guests um, are they um, well known uh, around the country, or uh, um, or probably for some of them this is this is a good way of introducing themselves to the larger audience. Uh, I think the latter. I think no, none of them is really well known around the country. Mm -hmm. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, well, some of the people we invited are well known in the skeptics community. There are some podcasters and bloggers, but um, I don't think any one of them is really, really well known around the country to the general population. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's there are some scientists, there are some um, some well, as I said, bloggers and podcasters, a magician, as I said, some doctors. So uh, phys mm -hmm. physicians, I mean, so it's a, I, I think it's a nice mixture, mixture of people. Yeah, and um, there is um, 
a recent initiative in uh, Germany, which is uh, quite good, and we, we've covered that on the show before oh. um, in the news segment. Um, information network homeopathy? Yes. So I would assume that that will be covered at the conference as well. Yeah, it will, pre it will be presented. We have on, the, on Thursday afternoon, it's a um, holiday, um, the 5th of May. Uh, we will have uh, some GVUP members will present some projects that have been going on in the last year. And mm -hmm. on the, the Thursday afternoon, is not, uh, the, the uh, entry fee is just 5 euros, so it's, uh, everyone is invited who just wants to learn about GVUP and just get a first impression and who does not want to join the, the whole conference. Um, and on that day, there are some... We present the projects we did in the last year. And the information network homeopathy will be one of it. Mm. And how how people get to know about the conference itself? So it's, uh, um, is it uh, widely advertised or... Or how do they get the information? It's, well, it's actually, most of it is actually within the skeptics community. So we do a lot on social networks. Um, we have a big Facebook community and also the, the local groups, skeptics groups, they also have their Facebook communities. Um, we, yeah, we... We don't actually, uh, yeah, we do have some flyers, but it's not like that uh, everyone in mm -hmm. Hamburg will see some posters or something. And I would I would assume that the local chapters of um, of uh, Give Me Pay are spreading the word uh, yes. very heavily. Um, how many local chapters are there? Um, do you know uh, the number or uh, basically all large uh, major cities uh, uh, have one? Yes. Of the big cities, definitely in Cologne and Munich and Berlin and Hamburg, but also also in smaller cities. So I think there might be between ten and fifteen local groups. Mm -hmm. So it's it there are um, concentrated around the the, the big cities then. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but it depends. Actually, sometimes there are like uh, two or three really active skeptics in a small city, oh, so yeah. they make a group. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you encourage uh, people to to do this? Do, you, do, do they get some help from the central um, leadership of the, the organization if they want to start a local chapter? Yes, they do. Uh, especially, you know, the, the the center they offer to write a letter to everyone who lives in that area to uh, to announce that there's a local group and that you can meet them. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, they cannot give away the addresses of the people, so they... Yeah, sure. uh, they do it themselves, yeah. And that's really helpful because then everyone knows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's very good. I understand your um, day, day job. It's yeah. Science Slam. Um, what what is Science Slam? A Science Slam is an it's an evening event event where young scientists present their own scientific projects in short ten minute talks, and after that the audience gets to vote. So it's like a poetry slam, but it's not. Uh, uh, writers who read their own texts, but it's scientists who present their own projects. And it's um, easily understandable and funny and entertaining. And it doesn't have to be funny, but it's always entertaining and easily understandable. And um, uh, scientists from all uh, faculties can join in. So it's not just for the uh, natural sciences, but also for humanities. 
And I understand that's uh, very popular. Yeah, it's very pop popular. We have, uh, uh, for example, here in Hamburg, we have an event about every six weeks, and we attract a, a crowd of 500 people every time. We're sold out with wow. 500 people. Yeah. That's impressive. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you started it yourself in, uh, in Germany? Yes, uh, it is a German invention. It was invented in, uh, actually twice in Germany, <laughs> uh, uh, independent of each other in the cities of Darmstadt and of Braunschweig. And so Hamburg was the first big city in which we organized it um, in 2009, the first time. And even the first time we had 100 people inside and it was really, really, really crowded because it was only a small room and 100 people outside who couldn't get in. And from then on, it has become very popular. And I think there are science slams in every university town in Germany by now. Wow. You must be, must be very proud of that. <laughs> yes, I am. I still can't believe it sometimes. But uh, yeah, I got used to it. <laughs> so congratulations. Um, if people uh, are interested in Science Slam, uh, are there any plans to to make it available in other countries? Uh, I mean, um, uh, do to expand it as a franchise or something? There are some uh, Science Slams in other European countries already, and there okay. have been in the US, like one or two. But you know, a real Science Slam culture and Science Slams on a regular basis are have are established only in a few European countries. I think in the in the Scandinavian countries and in the UK um, and in Austria, of course, and in, Czech, in, in the Czech Republic, yeah. I also learned yesterday that in the, even in Moldavia, they have a science lab by now. So if people want to start a science lab of their own, please, please, please get in touch with me because um, so you can avoid all the mistakes other people did. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I will be glad to help help you. And it's you know it's a loose network, so it's not it's um, you know there are no fees or anything, or you don't have to. Um, I, it's, yeah. You know, all of them are self organized, and it's a it's a grassroots movement. Sounds sounds brilliant, really. Um, so congratulations uh, for the success of it. And yeah, how can people contact you if uh, they want to start start this, their own science slam? Yeah, that's uh, my homepage is uh, science slam de mm -hmm. or science and you know my contact data are right on the front page. So awesome. don't yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so, dear listeners, please contact Julia Offer if uh, if you're interested in starting your own science slam. It's really sound. It really sounds like a, a great idea and a great initiative. So do join that. Um, and as for Scapcon, I wish all the success. I, I wish wish uh, a very loud success. Thank you <laughs> uh, for the conference, and uh, it's happening. Uh, in Hamburg uh, mm -hmm. between the 5th of May and the 7th of May. So, Dr. Julia Offer, uh, thank you very much for uh, being on the show with me. Thank you for having me. And uh, hope to talk to you at some point um, in person or um, if, if you have something new uh, in the making, please let me know and uh, we'll contact you and uh, we'll probably have you again on the show. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Yelena. Uh-huh.
Do you have a nice logical fallacy to talk about? Um, I do. Um, this time I want to talk about uh, a hopefully well-known fallacy. Um, it's called ad hominem. So this is a, a, an attacking the person making the argument rather than the argument in itself. Um, and when the attack on the person is completely relevant to the argument the person is making. So I've got a few examples um, of this uh, happening. For example, when a, an overweight doctor tells her patient to lose weight and the patient thinks to, to herself, if my doctor really believed that, she would, wouldn't be so fat. Uh, the second example I've got is um, a movie fan discredits the latest Tom Cruise uh, uh, blockbuster because Cruise is Scientologist. And the third example I've got is a homeowner ignores neighbor's advice on long care because the neighbor is a uh, Christian. So basically, putting the focus on the uh, arguer or the person uh, being discussed can distract from the issues that matter. So rather than concern, concentrating on the individual's character, we would, in, this, uh, in the above cases, be asking ourselves questions such as, is the doctor's advice medically sound? Uh, is the cruise film entertaining? Is the neighbor's lawn healthy? Um, so meanwhile, ad hominem attacks can also unfairly discredit an individual, especially because such critiques are often effective uh, because they appeal to the emotional side. And as we all know, it's much easier to convince people of anything if you just click the right buttons and push the right emo emotions, uh, etc. Yeah, that's very common, of course. Uh, you, if you can't attack if you can't attack the the argument you attack the yeah. person who's giving the yeah. arguments instead it it happened to me once uh um on a on a greater scale when uh, i was debating um creationist and uh, the audience was a mixed audience they were not particularly knowledgeable about evolution i think and uh when i started questioning a few things that he said and showed on in in a video then the moment I started speaking, the guy started uh, said that, oh, yes, and let me say that Andraj is a um, board member of the Hungarian Skeptic Society. They are uh, trying to push for materialistic uh, views and everything. And I said, okay, let's put aside who I am, try to think about and try to pay attention to what I'm saying and whether it makes sense regardless of who I am. And you know what? It worked. <laughs> okay. So so I got credit uh, from the audience for saying that. So sometimes this is uh, what... And I pointed out that it's a, a bad argument, that it's an ad hominem argument. And uh, this is where it can be really useful to know about these fallacies, that you can point it out in a in a debate that this is being used hmm. and i and i did yeah. like your tom cruise example yelena <laughs> well because actually to be to be totally honest with you i find myself not watching any of his movies anymore because i found out <laughs> that he's a scientologist and that's too bad because i do think i do consider <laughs> him a great actor he's a very good actor i think hmm. yeah. regardless of how how much of a jerk he is and even even when he appears on talk shows mm. i i like his appearances because yeah. he's a, he comes across as a as a nice person but the moment he starts getting into the field of his religion that's that's that that's when it's over that's 
Yeah, it's it's very hard to go go past that. You just think, oh, really? You know, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, and he's moving to the UK. Oh no! To the Scientology headquarters. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, this is I. At least this is what I read on on several news outlets. I think I've seen that as well. Yeah, mm. I heard it too. Mm, yeah, so mm. nice. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. All right. Pontus. Yes. I bet there is someone again being really wrong. There, are, there always is. Yes, today I'm going to talk about somebody in Germany or an organization in Germany called the Bund, uh, not the, but it's called Bund Katholischer Ärzte, I think. I'm, I'm not uh, very fluent in German, but it means the Association of Catholic Doctors. So uh, they are, they have a website, of course, and uh, they uh, talk about uh, homosexuality on that mm -hmm. website. And they admit that it's not a, a, a disease, but still, the subject is not a taboo for them to work on. So they say, yes, it's not a disease, but we can still cure it. Okay. okay? And s since 2009, they have their own working group who, who treats uh, homosexuality. Uh, and they get uh, patients all over the world, they say, from, uh, quote, uh, Argentina and Canada. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess their definition of the whole world is a little bit different than mine. And they offer, offer counseling, psychotherapy, and homeopathy. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they say, quote, that homeopathy is a valuable instrument to help a man in peril. Uh, you you know notice that it's only men. Oh yeah, because female homosexuality is probably not a problem or uh, something that they uh, you know. Yeah, they just don't care about. Ge generously ignore that. <laughs> it's <laughs> and it just ma it just makes me you know so tired to look at. I mean, I'm, I really ha hate this. Um, they have got one. This is not even wrong. This is. <laughs> This doesn't reach the level of being wrong. It's just stupid. Yeah, it's so stupid. You don't know where to start. <laughs> they get one thing right, though, inadvertently. They say they have a big warning. Don't try to treat homosexuality at home. No, well, no, because you shouldn't treat it at all. It's not an yeah. illness. Uh, so so that, that part they got right. Um, so it's, it, they have a website that concerns all kinds of uh, of. of you know, uh, what they call diseases. And so some of that it's legitimate, I'm sure. Uh, and this is buried quite deep in their website, but it's still active. And in, in April, they had a big cry for help because there was a young man in Hamburg who was, uh, who was struggling with his homosexuality and he needed help urgently. So that leads me to, this is not just a laughing matter. This is really, really serious because what they do is they spread guilt and shame where there should be no guilt and no shame. And also they're asking the impossible, change your sexuality. You can't do that. It's not, it's not how it works. Yeah. Uh, have, have you heard about, there was a couple of years ago, it was circulating on the internet. There is a column called Dear Amy on the Washington Post. You, have you heard mm. about that? Amy, Dick, Amy Dickinson, 
Uh, and you know, it's a, it's a advice column, so you can write in, dear Amy, I have this and this problem. What do you think? How can you help? How what should I do? And in 2013, there was a concerned mother who who wrote in to dear Amy and saying. I have a pro- I'm such a problem with my son, my young son. He will not stop by being a homosexual, no matter what I tell him. And and dear Amy or Amy Dickinson replied uh, really famously. She said like this: "Well, you could teach your son an important lesson by changing your sexuality, uh, just to show him how easy it is." <laughs> and I I, th- I think that. that's a really really classy. Classy reply. It's a very nice comment. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> so do that and teach yeah, them a lesson. Know, yeah, uh, homosexuals, they do struggle. That's that's a key point that is actually true. But the reason we, why they're struggling is not because that's something wrong with them. It's something wrong with society. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So That doesn't accept that. Yeah, and you know, this leads to, to suicide, this leads to depression, this leads to a rot- lot of terrible things. And uh, these uh, uh, Catholic doctors, they are not helping at all. So, to summarize, today's prize uh, for being really wrong goes to the Association of Catholic Doctors. For They are believers in a religious nonsense. They are claiming to treat something that is not a disease with something that is not a medicine. So... <laughs> Go figure. That's what I'm saying. It's it's not even reaching the level of being wrong. It's it's just idiotic. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <And> many level, <laughs> many levels of stupid on this. Yeah, the fifty shades of stupid. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Pontus. There is nothing more left, but to close the show with a nice quote, if you have one, Yella. I do. Today's quote came from Victor Hugo, who was a French poet, novelist and dramatist of the Romantic movement. Because a fact seems strange to you, you can conclude that it is not one. All science, however, commences by being strange. Science is successive. It goes from one wonder to another. It mounts by a ladder. The science of today would seem extravagant to the science of a former time. Ptolemy would believe Newton mad. Hmm. Nice. Good. Standing on the shoulder mm-hmm. of giants. You always build on previous knowledge and go forward. Yeah. yeah. Good. Exactly. And uh, aspire to the same things. The deadline for nominations for um, podcast awards is uh, coming up. And this is the first time that we can enter the competition. Uh, This is an international competition of uh, different podcasts, and there is a category, Science and Medicine. And you, dear listeners, if you think that our podcast is good enough to nominate it to the Podcast Awards, then uh, please submit our name, our podcast's name and uh, details um, on podcastawards.com. That would be very much appreciated. And, uh, yeah, since we're being a very young podcast at an early stage, uh, we don't have too high hopes, but just entering the competition, just being nominated would mean a lot to us. So... Uh, It would be an honor. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I think we are closing the show with this and join us next time again. As for you, Yelena and Pontus, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And talk to you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rob, and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Yes, so... Fucking bust so... Um... Ow! What's going on now? Did Andras hurt now himself? My butt hurts. <laughs> We don't want to know. Um, let me just think. No, 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 nothing, nothing nasty. It's just I'm. I've been sitting, sitting on this fucking chair for too long. Hang on. But what you doing? Ah, okay. <laughs> just shuffling. I'm just shuffling. That's fine. I I just shuff, need to shuff, shuffling, shuffle, shuffle. Pontus, I I I would I would yes. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, start that again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Start again. This uh, week's prize for being really gone wrong. Blah. Really gone. Really gone. Yeah. Change that. Really yes. gone. Gone. Gone.